Thank you all for tuning in to our first episode. My name is Tracy. My name is Farah Lord. My name is Maya Morena. And I'm Kate Zen. This is Red Light Reader. We are a book club at Blue Stockings as well as a podcast bringing you monthly literature written by and for sex workers that we're going to discuss as a group. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. This is a long time in the making. Um, and it we had to collaborate with a lot of different organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, we're partnering with Swap Behind Bars, which stands for the Sex Workers Outreach Project Behind Bars, which helps incarcerated sex workers. Um, does outreach to them, works on court cases, and uh, has a letter program, letter writing program already, where you can exchange letters mm-hmm. with someone mm-hmm. who's behind bars. So we're hoping to be able to send books to people and maybe also um, have commentary about the books from people from behind bars that we can talk about on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a really collaborative effort, and it keeps with the tradition of, you know, sex workers from all throughout history have been very educated women who really loved books and shared their love of books with the world. Mm-hmm. In the tradition of Spasia. For our first uh, episode next month, we'll have Melissa Jira-Grant talking about her book, Playing the Whore. Um, This episode, we're just going to be introducing ourselves, and um, we'll tell you a little bit about the books that influence the way we think and some of our experiences as sex workers and former sex workers. And hopefully inspire future sex workers to write books. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) And movies. And And movies. Please. Songs. Any well, sort of media that represents <laughs> much us better than in a way that is not being uh, a trope, imagined and fetishized and um, dead. <laughs> yes, please don't kill us in your stories, especially in a year in which um, now it's past the one year anniversary of FOSTA SESTA. Two pieces of legislation that <clears throat> their quote unquote stated intent was trying to fight online sex trafficking actually ended up exacerbating online sex trafficking Mm -hmm. by amending the Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act, Mm -hmm. which holds websites and hosts um, accountable for their users' content. Honestly, yeah, that is really fucking over hookers and sex workers of all kinds because the internet is such an integral part of sex work as we know it now. Um, And the consequences are very real. But it's also just, like, the first step towards, like, fully censoring the internet in a very legal way, um, which we already sort of get that through algorithms and um, having, like, monopolizing content by different corporations and entities with lots of money. But not only are sex workers being shut down on Tumblr and Instagram and all these places, but now it's like, if your content is, quote, sexually suggestive, Mm -hmm. which is a very vague terminology that can be used in a very specific exacting way to remove any content, um, so if you don't know what SESTA-FOSTA is, if you don't give a fuck about sex workers, like shame on you, but also you should be paying attention because they come after the horse first. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We're the canaries in the coal mine. As Melissa Jergrant uh-huh. wrote. Yeah. Exactly. And it's very true. And we've seen it throughout history and mm-hmm. we will continue to see it. Mm-hmm. And that is very much what this podcast is about. Um, we're trying to merge in many ways, the academic world with the real world with and bring speakers and authors that we love to another platform and invite listeners to actually engage with those speakers and engage with us and create another platform for that facilitates communication because a lot of platforms have been shutting down. Um, just recently, Instagram is heavily censoring content, any sexually suggestive content. Yeah, given that, you know, voices are anonymous and it's relatively safe for anyone to sort of post Uh 
you know, from their voice online. We hope that you'll be willing to leave us a voicemail with comments about the books that we're reading. And um, if you do so, we'll be happy to include it on our next episode. I'm Kate Zen. Um, I am an activist um, and a sex worker of many years. Um, and I've been involved with the movement since 2007 um, in New York City. And I've seen a lot of changes in the movement, especially after the passing of Sesta Fasta. There's so much more energy going into this right now. There is a decrim New York coalition uh, that is actively pushing forward two bills this session. Right now, I think it's just a really big moment in sex worker activist history, and it's a time when a lot of our paradigms around what sex work is is shifting, and it's a really exciting time for us to really like do analysis as a movement, think about what's happening, um, look at the books that have been written, and come up with new ideas in this current moment, and it's just like an amazing opportunity to have a chance to talk to these brilliant hoes <laughs> here, <laughs> and yeah... Think about, you know, ways to, 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 to rethink and come up with new language for how we do activism going forward. And we hope that everyone will also contribute. Yeah, I've been really excited with the books that I've been reading because they're newer books, so they just came out. But uh, these newer books are really taking uh, a more critical look at human trafficking as a phenomenon from the past and relating it to the present and really thinking about new ways to actually interact with the sex industry and to think about it and to also, I like the idea that maybe human trafficking is not the best way to kind of tackle the issue because I feel like it unites workers more if we're all just seen as workers and our struggle is is viewed as, you know, you know, fight against exploitation and eradicating exploitation. So that's been the most exciting part for me. Um, I should probably introduce myself. Um, <laughs> I'm Maya Morena. Um, I've been a sex worker for a while. I don't really remember when I started. I've kind of gone in and out uh, doing different parts of the industry, but I've been a sex worker for a couple of years now, like all the time, like it's part of my identity now. Um, I crossed the border when I was younger, uh, so I was smuggled here and... Now I live on Long Island, and I've been living here since I was six. And I don't know. I always just felt like sexuality was a natural part of me, but it was really hard to embrace. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Sweet. Um, I am Farrah Lord. Um, I have been doing all different kinds of sex work since I was 15 years old. Um the I wouldn't say that I was necessarily an activist in the sense of like doing political organizing and things like that, but I, I definitely was involved in protests. The very first protest that I went to was Centoya Brown's first incarceration um, and protesting her being wrongfully arrested and convicted back way back in like 2006 I want to say um and it was in California that was like kind of like a, a pretty nationwide tragedy and I feel like a lot of my experience with sex work has been very circumstantial and like being on the end of just like struggling to survive until the last few years of my life um so I've seen a lot of the just like nitty gritty of like how it affects people at like a base level. Um, even now, a lot of my close friends and loved ones who are sex workers are combating homelessness and um, just the violence of poverty in general. And mm -hmm. um, so I feel like in my space of, of somewhat privilege, I just am trying to do as much to self-educate and spread knowledge and um, be active in the community. Um, I'm also an artist, and uh, that's like a big part of my life. Um, maybe one day I will write a film or a book or something that features some cool sex worker um, archetypes, but, um, yeah, I'm just really honored to be here and thanks for inviting me into Red Light Reader. Yeah. Thanks, Vera. I'm Tracy. 
Um, some people call me Tracy Abla or Crazy Abla, which <laughs> was the name I was given in Turkey. Um, Abla means aunt or older sister. It's a term of endearment. Um, it was a name I was given. Um, when I was traveling through by some local girls. So it's kind of a cool nickname. My activist background in the sex work field and anti-trafficking field, which I guess anti-trafficking now is generally a code word for these big organizations that make largely a lot of money um, off the backs of sex workers, but that's something that we're going to get into more later, I think. Um, I started off as a stripper, actually, for many years, and largely my introduction to this field was, in many ways, the same as everybody else's, out of necessity, out of need, um, out of pragmatism, financial pragmatism, because... Mm -hmm. I was very disillusioned with our labor system and in many ways, wage slavery. And I needed the financial and economic and scheduling freedom of being able to make my own hours. And the sex industry is basically the only industry in which women make more than men. And <laughs> I think in many ways, it's one of the reasons why it's criminalized because uh, we are able to um, capitalize on our own erotic capital, mm -hmm. and it's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of experience in doing, I think, animal welfare and activist work through that realm. And so I have a long history of, of dealing with burnout, and of dealing with compassion fatigue, which I think are definite tools that definitely need to be utilized within the sex worker rights field because we're also dealing with people mm -hmm. who are doing survival work. We're dealing with a lot of like anti-migrant laws and people who are the most criminalized and suffering the most being simultaneously victimized and dehumanized, but mm -hmm. criminalized and deported back into situations that are often deadly mm -hmm. for them. And I'm attempting to use my somewhat academic background <laughs> in, in art school and merge all these writers that I've been heavily influenced by, like Sylvia Federici, mm -hmm. who is a Marxist feminist, who was hugely influential in, on me, um, especially her book, Caliban and the Witch, which mm -hmm. goes through the rise of capitalism uh, the rise of mercantilism and how that is actually connected to the witch hunts and how it's very largely a place in history in which women's power was systematically subverted and quite literally burnt out. And, and this is where we, this is where like things like uh, housework and wife work and I think a lot of the stigmatization of sex work comes from because all those forms of labor were dispropriated, right? Am I, I saying that right? The dispropriation, essentially the taking away, uh, the removing ownership of, and that was being a, a, what they call like the primitive accumulation of labor into the capitalist system and removed from the workers. Yeah, I think, we, you know, the idea of um, women's work has also been the thing that really shaped um, my understanding of how to do labor work at, at organizing yeah. with sex work. Um, I worked for a while with domestic workers first um, and also with street vendors and got into that area of like talking about what informal work is and why like women's work has been informalized because mm -hmm. women were you know originally property of their husbands and so their work in the domestic sphere is just considered not work at all and mm -hmm. even today we talk about you know the second shift and women having to do so much more work than men um, and seeing how the reason that sex work is devalued is because, like other forms of women's work, it's, it's seen as something that belongs for free to men, right? And, mm -hmm. and how dare you charge for something that, that belongs basically to, to the man in your life, right? To, 
like this is something that is a crime almost to either your father or you know your husband right um and mm -hmm. and the the criminality of it isn't so much it really is not so much about like what you know is is being violated in the woman at the end of the day it actually comes down to what is being violated in the man that owns you right it's it's almost mm -hmm. a theft and 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 so um thinking of like the ways in which like um household workers and like sex workers throughout history have like gathered together in different points in history to do um organizing has been really like motivating for me and um a book that really inspired me um was something uh, called Global Nannies. It was a book written, it's a compilation um, written uh, by Arlene Hotschild and Barbara Ehrenreit that looks at the global um, way in which housework like today kind of operates, um, where like Filipino nannies are traveling over to the North America and leaving their own kids behind in you know their own countries in order to like have what is considered empowering in this country, which is like, you know, these women that have like ri risen to the ranks, you know, the lean in feminism, <laughs> the Sheryl yeah. Sandbergs of the world. I mean, we don't talk about what that lean in feminism is, uh, is capitalizing off of. There's another rank right. of women coming in, right. That are taking care of these kids that are doing the labor that is, um, is seen as demeaning now because these like leaned in these, like, you know, these like boys club feminists are now like playing right. the game the same as men. And what, is left and still undervalued is women's work you know by leaning in and doing men's work you didn't actually have you know a society that actually valorizes women's work instead you continue to we continue to valorize men's work and we say this woman's work which she considered to be like you know really demeaning we're just going to give it to people who are more oppressed to do right and so mm -hmm. um this is something that I think, you know, as our, as, as an immigrant myself and, and, and trying to understand how like feminine, masculine, you know, oppression translates now into like first world, third world oppression, um, like how that shapes the city that we live in and how we, you know, the people we interact with. Yeah. I think one of the most, I don't know, the, the parts that I like the most about sex work is that this is one of the few industries where you can own your labor. So you can set your hours, you can set your pricing, and you get the full profits of your labor. Um, it's one of the few industries where you can do that as a worker. Because for most industries, you have to own capital and you have to own the means of production. So you have to you know, establish that base first before you can even do anything. But with this industry, you know, there's like that possibility of independence and, you know, escaping the kind of wage slavery that you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. You're a business owner. We're business owners. Like, and it's incredibly empowering. Yeah. And this is why I was so unhappy in so many of my other jobs, even though they were so valuable. I mean, I was in animal welfare for so long. It's incredibly rewarding, but it's so draining. And I felt so disempowered because I didn't feel like I had that much agency. I was like, I needed, I really needed to call the shots. And this allows me to really, it's ironic, you know, it's ironic that we leave, we do this work that's seemingly incredibly exploitative. And of course it can, because this is capitalism and everything is exploitative under capitalism. Really. We're all horse, <laughs> but, um, it's ironic that I do this work that is so taboo and so many people see me as a victim simultaneously see me as a victim and also something that is like abject, something that is very, yeah. it's a very like man, the top love disciplinarian type of, exactly. You're such a victim, but you've done wrong. So we have to punish yeah. you and eradicate you or whatever. Yeah. And it's, so it, I think it's very telling about our economic system and the way that capitalism is operating as a whole, that people are choosing this work to get away from the exploitative model and these companies that are essentially killing people. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, you see the big Amazons yeah. of the world and, you know, oh, all of I. And it, it's ironic because I would rather do so many things than, than work for an Amazon warehouse mm -hmm. or to do so many other labor jobs. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think Maya made a really interesting point when she was like, yeah, we own the means of production. Exactly. Right? And in mm-hmm. some ways, radical feminists say that that's like, you know, you're being objectified, you're objectifying yourself, but actually it's a form of liberation, right? We're mm-hmm. objectifying ourselves, our bodies are our tools, so we don't rely on some capitalist to set up a factory, right? right. We are the factory, and in fact, mm-hmm. that is the source of our liberation, right? Object identification is actually mm-hmm. what makes us like free to own our own labor as right. well as be the source of the product of our own labor so I've always very much thought of sex work as being like inherent inherently decolonialist like you know a lot of what we're talking about right now is like the the ways in which like waged labor um and like the heteronormative family unit and like the ownership of women and mm-hmm. the devaluement of women's work um is is like this it creates these exploitative exploitative systems and it's like yeah well we we live in this this colonized space where um the only way to functionally survive is to be like a productive cog in this machine that agrees to the hierarchical sort of society that we like exist within um, and we're kind of brainwashed into thinking that that, that is our value, that everyone is supposed to have a job and that like, we all have to like provide for ourselves and be self-reliant and independent. And at the same time, like everyone I know struggles with codependency because there's this huge lack of intimacy there. There's a lack of security. There's a lack of self-value and self-worth because, we aren't functioning as like an interdependent co-creative society that, that values every single member Mm -hmm. for just existing, that like values all life and sees it all as sacred. Like we're very like separating that from ourselves and separating any sense of like having emotional needs or physical needs or et cetera from our like means of supporting ourselves and so doing sex work like to me is like well this is like the one space where I get to claim my value my value is entirely based upon the relationships that I build with people and like me seeing them and being able to like give attention which is such an interesting thing to be Valued as like a lacking in our society. Um, I think like a lot nurturance. of yeah, mm-hmm. like nurturing and caretaking, which are obviously these like quote unquote women's work, but like it's also just having the ability to be present with someone, which mm-hmm. honestly, like in this day and age, like right, like that it is like you have to pay me some money to be physically and emotionally and spiritually and psychically present with you because if you don't pay me money I'm distracted by like figuring out how to pay my bills like I can't recall the last time I didn't have my phone with me on a date with my partner or like out with my girls or wherever you know like it's just you we're constantly like looking we're trying to get something from whatever like anything to like remind us that we're whole and that we're secure and that you know anyways I could I could ramble on just saying oh no I know and it's also this idea too of that like your happiness is predicated on your productiveness Mm -hmm. that productivity is this source of happiness and in New York where we're where we're in in the this very moment (laughs) is very much a part of that like busyness busyness Mm -hmm. is seen as this placeholder for happiness Mm -hmm. and that if you're busy then all all is good you know like everybody's Mm -hmm. so busy it's Mm -hmm. this weird it's a way to like fend off this existential dread Mm -hmm. in many ways Mm -hmm. um and the funny thing about doing this work and of course not for everybody but for a lot of people means we have a lot of extra time. (laughs) And I like to say to people that I am probably the only person that you're going to meet in a while who has um, any more free time than working time. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, you know, I'm always kind of working, but I can schedule that in my in my own life. And, like, that control over that is incredible. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to recommend a book. 
because yeah. it's one of my favorite books so far, and I'm just starting to really get into it. But it's called Mobile Orientations. <laughs> the the title is actually a lot longer, but you can look it up. It's Mobile Orientations. It's by Nicolia May. Mm-hmm. She is an amazing writer. She has actually been studying、uh, the sex industry for twenty years,、mm-hmm. and as she tells it. She started off as a kind of exclusionary. She entered the industry and in doing the research with this kind of idea that there had to be something wrong with this work. So she went in trying to find the problem,、um, which I think is what a lot of researchers that they tend to have those biases. And because of how pervasive horophobia is in our society,、um, researchers tend to not question it. They just assume that it's true and research very badly. But I, I do think it's it's starting to change. So she talks about、um, sex trafficking and international borders and. She has researched with individuals for several years, and she had to deconstruct the horophobia. And now she is writing this book to warn people、uh, to escape the binaries that we create for sex workers. So one of the things that she tries to do is to try to get out of the pure victim,、um, you know, like completely forced against your will, trafficked the whole entire time, versus like liberated, you know, completely free、uh, sex worker who's just you know rich and loaded and happy. That binary simply doesn't exist. So like her book is really about deconstructing that. And what I love about her book the most is that it focuses exclusively on migrant sex workers.、Um, those are the kinds of sex workers that get ignored. And you know, obviously, being a migrant sex worker myself, this book was like heaven sent for me.、Um, it was written a few months ago, so it's like it's、She、pretty new. Came into Blue Stockings and gave a talk. Yes,、um, two Mondays ago.、Like, oh, yes, I know. Yeah, I missed、yeah. it. I, I missed that one too.、Yeah. I saw it. I was so upset. But yes, it's um, it's a really good book, and she gets to the point immediately. So you'll be really entertained. I'm like making notes of all of the books y'all are suggesting right now. Like it's just like we'll put it onto our Goodreads, our little. <laughs> oh, there's another one too. So this is like one of the、uh, first books that I found when I was trying to research、uh, books about you know sex work. This is a lot of the books that I find on this topic are a lot newer.、Uh, this one was written several years ago, I think, though. But it's called Global Anti Vice Activism, eighteen ninety through nineteen fifty, fighting drinks, drugs, and immorality. And she puts that in quotes. But she talks not just about sex work. But really,、uh, mostly about the progressive era, and she talks about it from a global standpoint. So really, she's talking about the global empire, like America's global、uh, empire, moral empire, and how like the richer countries became kind of the world's police, and how they created this moral empire. So she talks about it from like the progressive era, and how it started with alcohol, drugs, and cigarettes, and immoral sexual activities. And how this created a bunch of institutions that work together to、uh, create this imperialistic system based on vice, and how it also translates into economic, social, and political oppression of the world. So it's a really heavy book, but it really, you know, talks about、um, the way the global market works in terms of、um, mm-hmm. soft power, as it's called, this influence、uh, of. Imagery that you create for yourself,、uh, in terms of a country and how you can exert your will onto others, and that soft power translates into police power, which becomes really violent. I'll have to find out another author too, because he is a French writer. He's a professor, but he talks about how this was marketed、mm-hmm. uh, from like the criminal underground,、mm-hmm. which was really cool. Yeah, it seems like we're running. We're like we're living through a second progressive era, right? This like a lot of the politics. This is of the, the day. Age. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, we're seeing it happen again. And like the ways in which like the United States exercises like soft power in the world through this like missionary stance of like anti vice,、um, or like anti trafficking, like this like doesn't subtract from the fact that it is still accumulating military power while it's doing that. And so I think the like what you said、mm-hmm. about like you know acting as a world's police, like the developing. 
countries and the developed countries have this relationship, which is much like colonialism, right? Like um, colonialism had a relationship of like, let's go and like tame the savages, right? Let's go mm-hmm. and like, we're going to like teach them about God. And in a lot of ways, there's a huge parallel to that with like anti-trafficking movements where there's like Christian organizations that are going to go and save the damned souls of the like, of the third world prostitutes, right? And mm-hmm. it is like a, it's a, it's a form of imperialism and it takes um, morality and like God's light as as a weapon, right, that goes hand in hand with something uh, much more violent. And that isn't godly at all. It's man-made. Exactly. <laughs> and the the whole irony of um, often these workers that they save from these brothels in, let's say, Cambodia, they found that these women left low-wage, very, very, like, coercive labor conditions in these like um, garment factories factories. Mm -hmm. and they left to do sex work and work in these brothels which was much higher paying and oftentimes uh, much easier work and then they rescued them and they brought them back to these garment factories Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. into these um, really impoverished conditions so that they can make these products so that these big companies can sell to Western consumers and buy many yeah. of the, the profits then go to these big companies. And so Western consumers feel like they're they're helping or they're saving. Mm-hmm. But in fact, they're still part of this neo-colonialist mm-hmm. machine. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll see stuff in stores like, like, handmade hats or or cards there's like a a card company that I saw recently there are cards in a in a co-op and like it's like each card you buy saves a sex trafficked woman in the Philippines or something like that and I I looked up their website to see like what are the wages that you're paying these women like Mm -hmm. is this actually really empowering them or are they just like going back to this, like, wage slavery. And um, or there's, like, absolutely no information on their website about what the working conditions are. So it's, like, really, you know, this disgusting sort of, like, uh, emotional manipulation that they're doing with, like, you know, the neoliberal hippies who go shop at the co-op and get their, like, local produce and... Mm-hmm. They feel like they're supporting, you know, this movement. And it's like, we really need to backtrack here and like kind of like rewrite the narrative. I think that calling calling sex work sex trafficking is so violent. And in many ways, um, it's very easy for these companies to get on board and support these big um, sex trafficking uh, initiatives. And in fact, it detracts from the real problem at hand, which is these big companies and our economic policies that largely disempower workers all over the world. Mm-hmm. And why are people moving to sex work? Like, why are people in these conditions? They're escaping these harmful and mm-hmm. horrific labor realities. Yeah. So it's like a distraction. It's so that, you know, so that Walmart and so that these companies that are largely responsible for the fires in, in, and the um, collapse of garment factories in like Bangladesh, mm-hmm. for them to yes. wash themselves clean mm-hmm. of responsibility and focus our attention on sex trafficking when, in fact, the biggest problem is these labor conditions that they've been creating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you can't eliminate survival trades without yeah. addressing exactly. the need for survival. Like in economics, <laughs> labor is not an externality. <laughs> but they view labor as an externality. They view it as something separate from the profit-making machine, but it's not. And so when you do that, when you try to increase productivity and yet also decrease the cost of labor, you completely 
<laughs> Destroy I, I want to recommend that book now. Did you want to say something, Kai? Yeah, the human yeah. welfare of labor, right, isn't incorporated it's, into the class, Yeah, the human right? welfare. Like, environmental costs aren't in there, human rights. Like, these sort of things mm-hmm. that are, mm-hmm. like, well-being are not incorporated. It's just the cost of the wage that is part of, you know, what is a labor cost for the production of an item. And now, like, instead of having, like, wages that used to, you know, ideally, I mean, we, we asked for, like, the social reproduction of, of labor to be part of the wage right that means that everybody needs to be able to be paid a family wage right and with migration that gets cut off like people have to leave their families in one country and work in another and you know the cost of actually like raising a family like being able to reproduce in these basic like ways Mm -hmm. is not being incorporated into the cost of production and so yeah yeah exactly and it's a very easy way for them to remove that, too, because these people, for instance, like if they outsource labor to another country with more lax regulations, it's easy for these companies not to be held responsible yeah. because they are a few steps removed. Mm-hmm. So they don't care what happens to these people. Mm-hmm. And then the consumers don't because it's not they're not actually. I mean, these people are thousands of miles away, so they don't see it. It's so much easier. Right. And, like, the discipline around, like, anti-trafficking, right? It's, like, making Mm -hmm. sure people have decent work. But what does decent work mean? It means working for this, like pretty exploitative machine right it's like you either work for us or we or we threaten you because you know sex work is like considered is, is considered immoral but it's it's more than that it's it's playing outside of the system right yeah. and that needs to be reined in it's anti-work right like i mean we're not actually <laughs> yeah. trying to get people into jobs we just think that everyone should have the means to live right like it's like I think the identity of being a worker, as much as I feel like it's something to hold in solidarity, it's also like, it's a very new, very colonialist, like, identity that, like, like we don't, we shouldn't actually have to be workers. Like, you know, we should be able to do whatever it is that we need to do and not have that weaponized against us or have, like, no means of surviving Sex workers against work. Yes. <laughs> my new tagline. <laughs> I, tell people. I, I tell people I'm an anti-capitalist who loves money. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I love spending money. It's great. Yes, um, I just don't like the work. I know. So right. just just and that's the trajectory of my life in so many ways is trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to make my life as comfortable as possible. Um, and also work as little as possible because life's too fucking short. Like, and I, I don't want to be spending it serving mm, other people. Exactly. Like I want to, I want to live my life and be useful and be useful in the ways that are actually useful. Exactly. Useful to the people we love, useful for, yeah, creating environments of care for people. Right. Like my priority is not to build a mountain to climb it's like (laughs) to survive and also have like means to help those that I care about maybe create some beautiful things in the world have y'all read um David Graeber's book debt yes the first five thousand years no it's a great yeah it's really good I um I'll just read like the um description here Um, David Graeber's fresh, fascinating, thought-provoking, and exceedingly timely history of debt. Here, anthropologist David Graeber presents a stunning reversal of conventional wisdom. He shows that before there was money, there was debt. For more than 5,000 years, since the beginnings of the first agrarian empires, humans have used elaborate credit systems to buy and sell goods. That is long before the invention of coins or cash. It is in this era, Grayberg argues, that we also first encounter a society divided into debtors and creditors. Graeber shows that arguments about debt and debt forgiveness have been at the center of political debates from Italy to China, as well as sparking innumerable insurrections. He also brilliantly demonstrates that the language of the ancient works of law and religion, words like guilt, sin, and redemption, derive in a large part from the ancient debates about debt and shape even our most basic ideas of right and wrong. Mm. Um, We are still battling these battles today without even knowing it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Which I think comes into play, right? Of like, don't we come into this life like already indebted to society somehow and then feel like we have to work 
to stake hold in it somehow. So, yeah, yeah we feel indebted to work. Mm-hmm. We're shamed if we're not productive. Mm-hmm. We're shamed, mm-hmm. and I feel this very much in New York City. And thankfully, I'm old enough now to very uh, staunchly retaliate against it. There's someone who wrote a book about, like, the the joy of laziness. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yes. It's I, like you've told idolizing yeah. laziness. I have this written somewhere in my notes, in my long list of books to mm. read. There's a but, quote that's like, um, a time's, um, time spent doing nothing is time well spent. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Just like being it's present. It's a form of resistance against like, like pressures to like yeah. basically rob you of your time, your life, your labor, right? It's, right. And also coming from, I, you know, I come from a, a largely blue-collar family who, you know, thankfully has kind of built a nest egg for themselves that uh, has helped support me become a relatively middle-class, mm-hmm. you know, woman. So I would consider myself largely privileged by circumstance. But also seeing the way that my family lives is they're beholden to their work. And that is very much their identity. And they don't they don't have that much leisure time and they don't really take advantage of it in creative ways. And much of my life was retaliation against that. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is woven into like religion, right? The same religion that tells us that we shouldn't be, you know, conducting certain types of sexual behavior yeah. is also like this Protestant ethic of work, right? Work, work, work. We, you know, we're born into this world where we've sinned and we've like outside of this garden where it used to be plentiful, but now we must like earn food by the sweat of our brow, right? There's this idea that like we are indebted. We're indebted because somehow even before we were born, there was this great guilt this great debt that was mm-hmm. that was done by our ancestors or something and now we have to pay for it right um coming out of this like like our whole society like coming out of this pressure that, that comes out of guilt guilt for sexuality guilt for laziness like this is the the sort of feeling that we have to kind of resist almost with pleasure right like radical right. pleasure radical enjoyment and radical maybe laziness you know Fuck yes <laughs> I yes. think, you know, pursuit of joy is one of the most radical things you can do, right? Like, That's also interesting because um, there's pretty much joy in, in a lot of things, but I feel like with the system we're in, it just it compartmentalizes everything and, and it drives a wedge between you and your humanity. So for me, it's like I can feel great joy in feeling pure and like wearing long skirts and not having sex for a long time. And, you know, <laughs> just being very squeaky clean just feels like nice. But also there are moments where I just I want to be very dirty and very horny and very just like <laughs> wild and uh, do things that are very out of the ordinary. And that during the time just feels right and it feels clean and it feels like I'm getting out all the demons from inside me and I'm just whole again and I'm human again and it feels great. So I think we don't get enough time to really explore all those facets of ourselves and feel like unashamed. And then I think I've really worked myself to be more comfortable in my body to do stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, we internalize so many messages of like what, you know, purity looks like, right? What yeah. like dirtiness looks like. And there's like no way mm-hmm. to really fully separate it because like even our resistance is kind of also a struggle with and, and against it at the same time, mm-hmm. you know? And so, yeah, it's it's hard to like create like real space, like by us, for us, right? Mm-hmm. Where we can be free. Um, totally. Yeah, it's not always an act of becoming, and it's always, like, I feel like it's always a process of unlearning, unlearning and relearning, and, like, reassociating different things, and, like, which is which is why language is so powerful. I was just looking, so reading Caliban and the Witch by Sylvia Federici, she also talks about the origin of the word gossip. Mm-hmm. So we all know what gossip means now. It's, like, malicious speech, um, and it's feminized. It's gendered. It's very, it's usually used um, against women. It's about women against women. Mm-hmm. The origin of the word is, comes I think in the middle ages or before, and it meant a very close female friend, like someone who was mm-hmm. present at the birth of a child. And it was systematically during the time of the witch hunts and during the rise of the capital, uh, of the capitalist era, um, was turned 
to mean malicious and malignant speech. So oh, this was very so female interesting. So female friendship was seen as suspicious, and it still is today, mm-hmm. I would argue. And actually, um, women were imprisoned uh, during that time period for coming together. And like women in groups of more than two or three were seen as suspicious. And so in many ways, this work that I do now, sex work, has been a way of me reclaiming my relationships with women. Mm -hmm. Which I think one of the most massive tools of weaponization that is being used against us is really just trying to like separate us from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, like all of these new laws that are passing are like entirely about like redefining the the language around what quote sex trafficking is and creating like a felony to live in the same home and be on the same lease to book a duo with someone Mm -hmm. to help someone with their booking or their website to pass out condoms to sex workers is considered pandering in the state of California to give someone references. So sex workers share references. Mm -hmm. They share information with other providers on their past clients. And this is one of the most successful ways of vetting clients, making sure that A, aren't police and B, aren't dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that, sharing that information, you can be charged with trafficking. Mm-hmm. And you also mm-hmm. see this stuff in places like the UK where sex work is legalized, but is still criminalized if not done in a very specific way. Sex workers can't live in the same household together. Yeah. So it's very dangerous for someone to work alone because, of course, you can be raped and murdered and robbed and whatever. But mm-hmm. there's in many places, so in, I believe, in Scandinavia as well, in Sweden, sex workers cannot also live together. Mm-hmm. Do you know that? If that's yeah, true, I, I think mean, that's true. Like demand models, like, they'll keep in place the kind of, like, body house rule. Exactly. Like, sharing, yeah. like, a space with another worker is, like, considered mm-hmm. a house of prostitution, right? And so, yeah, yeah, at the end of the day, like, the result is isolating workers yeah. from each other. Which only puts us more at risk of violence and of, like, also seeking out help from pimps or et cetera, et cetera, which is really the actual definition of sex trafficking. So it's like, you know, how much of these laws are really entirely violence against sex workers and trying to just eliminate us completely and... You know, yes. and in many ways, it just reifies this like hierarchical labor model mm-hmm. because, you know, sex workers creating collectives. I mean, that's that's what brothels were in, mm-hmm. in many ways and throughout history. Mm-hmm. And that's what sex worker collectives are now. And in many ways, that's a very anarchist, syndico anarchist mm-hmm. way of organizing labor mm-hmm. and, and that's dangerous that right? is dangerous, mm-hmm. <laughs> that is dangerous <laughs> to the economic model and so in so many ways they suppress unions and they suppress this because it's very easy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah what you said they want to eliminate prostitution right the, the mm-hmm. end of the day like all of this like putting like trafficking you know these like pretty words that are put up to sort of like make it seem benign make these people that are advocating for this seem like the ones doing good at the end of the day they're interested in one thing and they're they're really just more like the prohibition era like they see this as vice and they want to get rid of that vice and Mm -hmm. you know they don't actually care deeply about the harms that are caused they only care about the harms that are caused right to survivors people who are able to like repent and conform to their narrative and and plead to them, right? And and that gives them a sense of power. They want that power, but if they don't actually care about what happens to sex workers and they don't actually care about, like, the harms that are done, you can't only care about survivors and not care about sex workers because if you do, that hypocrisy indicates that you only care about the people that you can control. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Exactly. And we... It's not about care. I think the whole philosophy of this needs to change because... Uh, because of the way we grow up in this society and because it is so Christian and Protestant and WASP, uh, there tends to be this idea that like we're all natural sinners, we're all just going to do evil, so we need to be punished. Um, so we, a lot of us were raised in the tradition of like hitting our children, um, you know, to 
violently get them to conform to society's standards. And we realized over time that it just doesn't work. And I think we haven't really learned that lesson yet because we still just assume that people are bad and that they're going to do bad and there's no other reason behind it than just they're internally bad because they're human and it needs to be like destroyed. That part of them needs to be destroyed. Exactly. And yeah, we still hold true to this like prohibition model, this coercive model, this carceral model of controlling people. And we saw that prohibition didn't work mm-hmm. in the it past. Created, prohibition of alcohol specifically. Yeah, created gangs, right? Created mm-hmm. gangs and created the mafia. And that's largely why Harry Anslinger um, actually helped end prohibition of alcohol. Mm-hmm. But through largely racist <laughs> means, did not end the prohibition of other drugs and we saw that that created cartels that created drug trafficking Mm -hmm. and that created huge rise in murders of of people Mm -hmm. and huge criminal activity so Mm -hmm. anti so criminalization from criminalization yeah so criminalization causes Mm -hmm. trafficking Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely and it's interesting because um like we talk about like you know the good versus evil and how good creates evil and you know evil creates good these dichotomies that are particularly western um and that like you know this is a stereotype of what eastern thought is but um (laughs) in Taoism, we think of like the one embodying the other Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of ways, like, you know, with it's it's through these anti-trafficking issues, through this like urge to like define what is good and what is bad, that, that criminalization is created, that evil is created in the world, that that there's a market for for it because of the laws that that bar, you know, that bar mm-hmm. these activities from happening in a more natural, more self-controlled sort of way. And so and we keep seeing this struggle going back and forth, right? Like laws that are, you know, looking for uh, the things to fight are going to create those enemies. Um, and so these anti-traffickers, like, as, as they, like, create more criminalization, they are indeed creating more dangerous situations, right? They are creating the enemies they want to fight, but we are kind of caught up, you know, in that, in that battle um, of yeah, sex exactly. workers. There was a report, I think, that came out of San Francisco. I think, I think it was California. Um, it was, like, uh, police records... That was released recently since FOSTA SESTA. Um, there's been a rise in uh, sex trafficking reports. Was it like 127% yeah. increase? It's um, more than that, I think. It's I potentially more than that. And when Craigslist had its erotic services ads, uh, erotic services section up, they found that it decreased the homicide rate of women hmm. by. 17 percent wow i think in which cities or like across the board or across the board and this wasn't just of this wasn't just of sex workers this was all women mm-hmm. it decreased the homicide rate yeah there's- so the internet yeah the internet is actually a safe haven for many people and now mm-hmm. it's being systematically attacked and the thing is like okay so I'm just going to pull out the I've been trafficked card. (laughs) Like, the thing about trafficking is that, like, we forget, like, how much agency each person has. Like, even, you know, so I don't want to exclude, obviously, people who are trafficked against their will. That is something that happens. It happened to me. Um, I think a good way to explain it is, like, when we look back at, you know, Uh, chattel slavery with African-Americans, they had some moments in their lives where they had some version of freedom. Um, And, you know, the definition kind of changes depending on, you know, their point of view. Also, like once it was abolished, they had other forms of slavery that came into place, such as um, um, sharecropping. Sharecropping. Yeah. 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 With sharecropping, it was another uh, version of slavery through debt um, and being tied to the land. The plantation because they set up these deals of sharecropping and the vagrancy laws so it's still slavery but it's not the same and it doesn't have to 
it's not like you're held at gunpoint, you're forced to be there the whole entire time. Um, they always use violence and it creates this perfect victim narrative that just doesn't exist. Um, a lot of people who visit people in prison, they kind of see that firsthand that there is no such thing as a perfect victim. And we end up letting a lot of victims down because regardless of who you are, you don't deserve abuse and you don't deserve exploitation. So I think that's where this whole thing fails that the idea of a perfect victim, it rarely ever happens. Most of the times you can find a way to blame somebody for what they're going through, whether that's um, they didn't dress appropriately or they were at the wrong place or why, why were you there? You know, that's not a good place for you. You knew something bad was going to happen or, oh, you provoked that person and that's why that happened. So there's just no such thing as a perfect victim. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, like that's like a whole other space of like, you know, we really need to have like resources in place for people who are going through this. But a lot of the cases of of like what we would consider trafficking to be. (laughs) Thank you. um, It's like people who are in a desperate situation will seek out or like work with um someone who is a pimp Mm -hmm. because they promise safety for their families food for their children clients at their door Mm -hmm. um they of course are going to take a huge cut but it's like sometimes it's safer than working the street and like when craigslist shut down which was many many years ago um their adult services section Mm -hmm. like so many people that i was working with you know or like there was like this flood of indoor workers who ended up on the street and it pushes everyone who's already on the street further into seclusion and it eats up all the clientele and then it makes it much more attractive when someone's like trying to hustle you or approach you and be like hey you know do you want to come work for me you're going to say yes and you're going to end up in a much less um you're going to have less agency over your own work in that situation but the the agency of choice is there and like the thing with Sesta Fosta that we've been saying from the very fucking beginning is just that um, when you take our ability to self-manage and self-govern away, we have to go elsewhere. You're literally putting us in the hands of people who are trying to exploit us and who want to exploit our desperate position. And so like before any of this was even published, like many years ago, Amnesty International was like the criminalization of prostitution is what leads people to see clients that are dangerous to um, reduce their boundaries and take health risks to um, commit like other more violent crimes um, or to be trafficked. Exactly. No. And I think everyone can actually, almost everyone can actually empathize and identify with this idea because so many people, especially in the American economy, have taken jobs that were not perfect, were not ideal, and stayed in jobs where they were sexually harassed, where they were not given fair wages, where they weren't paid for overtime. You see this constantly Mm -hmm. in the restaurant industry. In um, under the table work, or they've paid, taken extra jobs. I mean, I've personally had far more uncomfortable and dehumanizing situations in my legal jobs than I ever have in my entire career as a sex worker. Mm-hmm. And now is definitely a dangerous time, and I you know, don't screen as thoroughly as I used to. I take in Mm -hmm. way more clients and I've been contacted by a lot of pimps and I'm very lucky to not live paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I have housing and I have savings so I can tell these guys to fuck off. (laughs) I, and I, you know, (laughs) often will fuck with them and it's really funny. Um, And it's funny for us, but for someone else, having someone else to manage and someone else who might have a re- like a pool of other clients that you can draw from whether or not that situation is dangerous or not is really alluring when you've had 
uh, so many resources taken from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there was somebody today that messaged me on Twitter that said something along those lines of, oh, well, the way the sex industry works is that, like, they're all owned by their pimps. And um, the pimp, like, takes all the money. And I thought about that for a long time because that's not how any of this works. Like, <laughs> right. There's the, misinformation, these stereotypes. Yeah. Um, when they talk about, like, pimps, I, I think they mean, like, managers or agencies or things like that. Um, you know, somebody who's, like, managing and getting them customers, driving them around, being, like, the the what's it called security (laughs) yeah security (laughs) that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um but it's weird because that rarely ever happens that somebody takes the full profit of your labor that's so rare it reminds me of like um all the undocumented immigrants that were protesting against like this company because the company refused to pay them so Mm -hmm. the company exploited them and got the full profit of their work and just refused to pay them it's kind of like that situation it happens very rarely, especially in the underground world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because it, you know, you take, you know, people who are, are managers or agents, they take a portion of your paycheck because they're doing a job for you. So they take a portion of your cut, but they're not taking the full profits. And if they are, that's like a really rare situation you find yourself in. Yeah, there's such a diversity of different situations that people are in. And like, mm-hmm. we tend to assume that the one that we see in the movie is the only one. Not to say that that doesn't like exist because I'm, you know, I'm sure that there are certain people that are, you know, in really exploitative relationships with the person they work for. Um, But at the same time, like that, you know, there's a lot of other relationships out there. There are people working for themselves. And that diversity of different contexts isn't really what's um, explored in the media, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. And we don't get to tell our own stories, right? We don't get to, like, write our own films. Right, exactly. Well, it's time. (laughs) It's time. Well, I just watched this film, Cam, um, Cam, which is on Netflix, about a cam girl, and it, it's written by a cam girl. So, and it's yeah. a horror film. It's a really funny kind of like um, horror film, and it's not a, it's not a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna reveal a spoiler, but she goes back to camming. Yeah, and that's the important thing. Uh-huh. And so you know, she has this like self determination. Mm-hmm. Like she's able to self determine the trajectory of her life mm-hmm. and her work and her work isn't used in a way to to shame her into being um, a good girl mm-hmm. like and this is starting to remind me of this book that I that I just read uh, by Kate Mann and I think it came mm-hmm. out yeah I mentioned it it either came out in 2019 or in 2018 called uh, down girl and it's the logic of misogyny mm-hmm. and it's it's incredible <laughs> It's incredible. The logic logic of misogyny. I'll read an excerpt of it. Um, In this economy of moral good, women are obligated to give to him, not to ask, but expected to feel indebted and grateful rather than entitled. This is especially the case with respect to characteristically moral goods, attention, care, sympathy, respect, admiration, nurturing. The flip side of this is his being entitled to take much of these moral goods, including what would seem the lives of those who could no longer give him what he needs in terms of moral sucker. So as she's talking about this this, this um, aspect of misogyny, as something that comes out in retaliation. So once you step out of line and whores really embody this because we use these moral goods that are, that are supposed to, that men are supposed to be entitled to by their very nature. Mm-hmm. And we're like, yeah, we'll freely provide them at a cost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we capitalize on this. Mm-hmm. And so this is why the dead hooker is so, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why there's so many tropes of the dead hooker and why 
Men are well, angry. At men are very yeah. angry, yeah. and they're very easy to murder. Mm-hmm. They're very easy to. Well, also, seen let's as just say, like hookers do get murdered. Like, uh, well, yeah, exactly. We also just acknowledge yes. that because like, it's a big. It's not just in the imaginations yeah. of writers. Whores get murdered at high at higher yeah. rates than any because, than any other. Yeah, job. we're disposable. Exactly. Like you know, we're mm-hmm. like often isolated from society. But also, I'm mean, like, like men are actually angry that we are taking our sexualities in our own hands right like yeah. this is a source of like you know it's it's something that feels like it's deprived from them right and mm-hmm. not being a good girl not being under the control of like these sort of patriarchal morals is becomes a justification for doing violence to us mm-hmm. yeah and like women's humanity being contingent upon these like moral goods that they're giving to other people essentially obeying men exactly so they're seen as objects not subjects by their very nature Mm -hmm. so then reclaiming that 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 subjecthood Mm -hmm. and reclaiming that agency and very much you know the establishing of my boundaries my personal boundaries with other people Mm -hmm. and finding my voice went along with me going into sex work Mm -hmm. and that is something that most people don't think about most Mm -hmm. people don't realize that uh many sex workers have very strong um boundaries Mm -hmm. with physical touch Mm -hmm. with moral goods and they're able to establish them Mm -hmm. and they're able to get clients to respect them Mm -hmm. clients respect my boundaries way more Mm -hmm. than the average hookup yeah (laughs) <laughs> so dating <laughs> dating has become difficult. Uh-huh. But, yeah, that's really but clients funny. are always, I mean, and of course I can't speak for everyone. I'm just speaking of my personal experience mm-hmm. as a privileged sex worker. Um, but it's actually a really beautiful thing to to see someone and they're like, I don't know what I should do. And I'm like, you know, just like act natural. I really appreciate you asking me Uh about my personal boundaries and they really are. They want to make sure that you're comfortable too. Yeah. It's been good practice, right? Like, Doing sex work is all about actually setting boundaries, creating a scene, walking mm-hmm. someone through in a timed way for all the things that, that you are yeah. allowing them to do, right? And mm-hmm. this yeah. is something that is like completely like miss. I think it's always like reversed in the media that like there's just like passivity around sex work, right? That we're right. being used as objects or something, just what? body parts. When in reality, it always feels like the opposite. It's like so active, right? Yeah. You have to guide someone through an experience, and it, it's mm-hmm. actually the the other person that often feels like the more passive one and then you have to like completely create the scene and and I've always found that to be incredibly like Mm -hmm. uh mentally especially if it's dom work or I know even like you know vanilla work like it feels like it's a very active engaging process and I feel Mm -hmm. more mentally engaged usually in, in in sex work than you know in my casual yeah. partnerships yeah i just think so. of how many lap dances i gave as like a baby stripper <laughs> where i would literally have to put someone's hands on me because they were like afraid to touch me yeah which i think also though we do like i i don't want to discount the experiences that we have where people do actively try to push and cross our boundaries and act really entitled with us and Mm -hmm. take it a step too far from the get-go. Because that definitely exists. Um, And we are pretty consistently bombarded with that, which I think is also part of why we are very good at maintaining boundaries because it's so clear to us when someone is, like, not in any way going to regard Mm -hmm. them from, like, the second they send us a text message or email or give us a call. Like, Mm -hmm. you can tell just by the way that they treat you and Mm -hmm. whether or not they've, like, done their research on etiquette or read your Mm -hmm. website or your ad or whatever. It's, like, you know, does someone respect your wishes? Yes, no. Like, if not, that's really my screening at this point (laughs) in life. It's, like... Did you read my website and, like, respect what I asked of you and, like, like treat me as an individual? And, and this is why you know? my clients so often respect my boundaries, because I'm able to say no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes so much of the difference. Mm-hmm. So in this 
first episode, we were just giving a little taste, I guess, of the kind of issues that interest us, who we are, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode when Melissa Gerard-Grant will be um, coming and reading some excerpts uh, from her book, Playing the Whore. Um, and yeah, we'll see you next time. See you next time. <laughs> okay. Yes. Thanks for the red light reader. Yeah. <laughs>